This is the Africa service of Vatican Radio. Welcome to our half-hour daily program for Africa. Stay tuned for our bulletin of church news, which will be followed by Panorama, and then our feature, Health and Healing. I am Johnny Baptist Tomosime. Pope Francis and members of the Curia began the third day of their week-long Lenten spiritual exercises on Wednesday. On Tuesday, the preacher of the papal household, Cardinal Laniero Cantalamessa, offered a reflection on the theme, Only one thing is necessary. He said if we have that one thing, then we have everything, and if we don't have it, then we have nothing. Quoting scripture, he said Jesus Christ talked about it in two parables in Matthew chapter 13 verses 43 to 55, calling it the hidden precious treasure for which we can live everything, and that is God. The Holy Sees Hospital Bambino Gesù, all in English, the child Jesus, commonly known as the Pope's Hospital, is marking 100 years of its existence. Its main facility is in Rome, but it has several branches scattered in different parts of the Italian region, known as Lazio. At the international level, Bambino Gesù is involved in healthy training projects in 16 countries around the world, including in South America, the Far East, the Middle East, and in Africa. The objective is to train manpower for less developed countries to respond to the demand for health and local needs. Similarly, the hospital has established pediatric departments in Catholic hospitals in several developing countries, including Egypt and Tanzania. We have a report. In 1869, Duchess and Duke Scipioni founded the Bambino Gesù Pediatric Hospital. Their house in the centre of Rome and its 12 beds became the city's first hospital dedicated to children. Then, on the 20th of February 1924, the hospital was donated to the Holy See, making it the Pope's Hospital, to become a point of reference for the care of all ill children in Italy and around the world. Exactly 100 years have passed since that day. By then, the hospital had already moved to the ancient convent of Sant'Onofrio on the Ianiculum Hill. Having moved in 1887, less than 10 years after it was founded, the hospital still stands there to this day, though it is expected to move again in 2013 to where what was once the Furlanini Hospital stood. The hospital had already faced numerous emergencies, including the aftermath of the Avizzano earthquake in 1915, in which 420 children were taken to the hospital, and the Spanish flu epidemic during the Great War in 1918, during which 300 children were hospitalized. 
First visited by Pope John XXIII in 1858, it was then visited by Paul VI in 1968, by John Paul II in 1979, by Benedict XVI in 2005, and Pope Francis in 2017. I perceive that more than a hospital, this is a family. Pope Francis addressed children and staff of the Bambino Gesù Hospital in 2017. Pope Francis too is part of that family. He has visited the children in the hospital, who in turn have sent him letters and drawings. The Bambino Gesù Pediatric Hospital is not known as the Pope's Hospital just because it belongs to the Holy See, but because the love and care the Holy Father has for the establishment is clear and true, and the children know it too. I'm Francesca Merlo. The Holy See's Dicastry for Evangelization has released a guidebook with the title "Teach Us to Pray." The guide invites the faithful to intensify prayers, a personal dialogue with God, and to reflect on their faith and commitment in today's world in preparation for the Jubilee year, which will be celebrated next year, 2025. Christopher Wells has the details. The new guidebook entitled "Teach Us to Pray" is the latest in a series of resources provided by the Dicastery to assist the Church as she prepares for the celebration of Jubilee 2025. The title is taken from the request of Jesus' disciples in the Gospel of Saint Luke, which provides the framework for the Church's preparation for the Jubilee. Inspired by the authoritative teaching of Pope Francis, "Teach Us to Pray" consists of chapters dedicated to prayer in the parish and in the family, the prayer of young people, prayer in cloistered communities, catechesis, and spiritual retreats, and concludes with a section on the prayer of the faithful for Jubilee 2025. According to a press release announcing the booklet. Teach us to pray is intended to offer reflections, directions, and advice for living more fully in dialogue with the Lord and in relationship with others. The Italian version of Teach Us to Pray is currently available to download at no cost from the website of the Dicastery for Evangelization. Spanish, Portuguese, French, English, and Polish editions are being prepared and should be available soon. Pope Francis announced the year of prayer ahead of the Jubilee during the Angelus of January 21st, when he called on the faithful to intensify your prayers in order to prepare ourselves to live this event of grace well, and to experience the strength of God's hope. Explaining the purpose of the year of prayer, Pope Francis said the year is dedicated to rediscovering the great value and absolute need for prayer in personal life, in the life of the Church. And in the world, I'm Christopher Wells. Reports from Haiti say Bishop Pierre Andre Dumas, the ordinary of the Catholic Diocese of Anse Avio Miragonis, and who is also the vice president of the Haitian Catholic Bishops Conference, was caught in an explosion which reached the residence where he was staying on Sunday in the capital, Port-au-Prince. He was wounded, but reports say his condition has stabilized. Bishop Dumas has several times condemned gang violence in Haiti and the formalization of banditry in the country, warning that without concrete action, the situation could deteriorate into civil war. Haiti has been insecure for many years, with the armed gangs dividing the country into spheres of influence, where they impose taxes, kidnap people for ransom, and assassinate whoever they regard to be a threat. 
In October last year, the United Nations Security Council adopted a resolution which approved a multinational mission led by Kenya to help the Haitian National Police to restore law and order in the country. However, the Kenyan contingent is still unable to come because a Kenyan court prohibited its deployment last month on grounds that its creation did not follow the correct constitutional procedures. Catholic bishops in Burkina Faso concluded their plenary assembly on Sunday, February 18th, and issued a statement expressing concern about persistent insecurity in the country, which has affected pastoral activities. Burkina Faso is at war against Islamic insurgents who have cut off some parts of the country. The bishops said in the statement that 30 Catholic parishes in their associated structures such as healthy and educational facilities remain inaccessible. The consequences of this, they said, is the decline of social economic activities in some places, loss of job security for pastoral workers, the impoverishment of the population in the affected areas, and the displacement of people. The chairperson of the National Commission for the Liturgy of the Catholic Bishops' Conference of Angola and Sao Tome and Principe, Archbishop Luzizila Kiara of Malange, has invited the Susan liturgy coordinators to adhere to the established norms in their areas during liturgical celebrations. He made the call in Rwanda at the weekend during the closing mass of the first national meeting of liturgy coordinators. He said liturgical norms need to be respected without everyone inventing their own things because liturgical celebrations are sacred. Archbishop Kiara also invited the coordinators to use the Lenten season to get closer to God because God educates his people to live their slavery and experience the passage from death to life. The chairperson of the United Nations Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan and her team of independent investigators Yasmin Soka has delivered their report to the United Nations Human Rights Council after completing the 12th visit to the country. She said in Geneva on Monday that South Sudan's leaders must go through the transitional period before the presidential election scheduled for December this year with a lot of caution to avoid returning the country to war. She appealed to them to do what they can to prevent further violence and gross human rights violations because her commission had found out that violence and gross human rights violations continue with impunity with the women and the children being the main targets of these crimes. She advised that it was essential for the government of South Sudan to create a unified national army and transitional justice processes to deal with the root causes of the conflict, noting that the independence of the judiciary and joint security arrangements with the constitutional support are essential to avoid a return to conflict after the elections. Mrs. Soka and her team expressed the concern that 10 months to the elections, none of the processes agreed upon between President Kiri and the opposition groups under the 2018 Revitalized Agreement are even close to completion. You are tuned to the English Africa Service. 
of Vatican Radio. African News Panorama. South Africa will hold national and provincial elections on the 29th of May, coinciding with the celebration of its 30 years of freedom and democracy, a statement from the presidency said on Tuesday. The statement posted on X, formerly Twitter, said President Cyril Ramaphosa has consulted with the Electoral Commission regarding the date. Voters will be electing a new national assembly as well as the provincial legislature in each of the country's nine provinces. Mr. Ramaphosa is seeking a second term as president in the country's seventh democratic election since the end of the apartheid system in 1994. According to South Africa's electoral law, parties are allocated seats in the 400-seat parliament based on the percentage of votes they receive in the election, and members of parliament then elect the president. Analysts say the ruling African National Congress, ANC, is expected to face a tough challenge to retain its parliamentary majority in the 29th May elections. Meanwhile, a court in South Africa has dismissed a bid by the main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, or DA, to declare a policy by the governing ANC to deploy its cadres to key state institutions as unconstitutional. The DA says the policy undermines the independence of state institutions and fueled corruption, but the High Court on Tuesday ruled against the DA. The ANC has long argued that the policy of deploying cadres, that is party members with leadership skills among others, is aimed at bringing about racial transformation in South Africa after the end of white minority rule 30 years ago. The Nigeria Customs Service has announced plans to start distributing seized food items in stores across the country to tackle the current challenges of food security and the soaring cost of essential food items in the country. In a statement Tuesday, Abdullahi Maiwanda, a spokesman for the Customs Service, said the items must be certified fit for consumption by relevant agencies before they are distributed in an equitable and transparent manner. The move comes as protests over high food prices have erupted across Nigeria in recent weeks. Senegal's justice ministers announced the release of nearly 400 protesters from prison. Those released on Tuesday were arrested and imprisoned during the political demonstrations of March 2021 and June 2023. Isa Tatal Sal said the release of the political prisoners was aimed at easing tensions in the country. Political demonstrations in Senegal have often resulted in arrests and deaths. Most recently, three people died during protests over the postponement of the country's elections. Meanwhile, opposition candidates in Senegal's presidential election have accused the authorities of dragging their feet on setting a new date for the vote after a court ruled last week that a 10-month postponement was unlawful. President Macky Sall last week promised he will abide by the Constitutional Council's request for the vote to be scheduled as soon as possible. In its ruling last week, the court blocked a decree to postpone the election originally scheduled for the 25th of February. In a joint statement late on Tuesday, 16 of the 19 presidential contenders complained about what they referred to as an inexplicable slowness in enacting the council's ruling. They said the slow resumption of electoral operations showed Mr. Sall's unwillingness to launch a process that would lead to a change of power. President Macky Sall, who is 62, is not standing for re-election, having reached the constitutional limit of two terms in power. 
The UN has imposed an arms embargo, travel ban and asset freeze against six rebel leaders in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The move following a UN Security Council meeting on Tuesday comes amid violence in the eastern part of the Central African nation. Those sanctioned include the military spokesman of the M23 rebel group, a general in the Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Rwanda or FDLR, and two senior leaders in the Ugandan armed group, the Allied Democratic Forces or ADF. The others are the leader of the National Coalition of the People for the Sovereignty of Congo, a Mai Mai group, and a commander of the armed group, Chuirwaneho. The M23 and the FDLR have been at the center of tensions between the governments of the Democratic Republic of Congo and neighboring Rwanda. The DRC accuses Rwanda of supporting the Tutsi-led M23 rebel group, while the Rwandan government blames its neighbor for collaborating with the Hutu-dominated FDLR rebels, whom it says have links to the 1994 Rwandan genocide. A recent advance towards the town of Sake by the M23 rebels, which has led to the forced displacement of thousands of people, was strongly condemned during Tuesday's Security Council briefing. Staying in the Democratic Republic of Congo, President Felix Tshisekedi has accepted the resignation of the country's Prime Minister. Jean-Michel Sama Lokunde announced his resignation in a video shared on the presidency's social media platforms late on Tuesday. A statement from the president's office said that President Tshisekedi has asked Mr. Lokunde's government to continue with its duties until a new government is formed. Governments in the Democratic Republic of Congo are headed by prime ministers. The outgoing prime minister will now take up legislative duties after he was elected as a member of parliament in last December's general elections. You are tuned to the Africa service of Vatican Radio. And now, our feature, Health and Healing. A report released recently by the Lancet Public Health Experts says climate change is having a more serious impact on vulnerable populations such as children under the age of one year and the elderly above 65 years of age. Climate change refers to variations in weather patterns such as temperatures and rainfall in a region over a long period of time. Global climate change, on the other hand, refers to variations over the entire Earth. These include warming temperatures and changes in rainfall, snow, long droughts, as well as the effects of the Earth's warming. Scientists agree that the Earth has been getting warmer due to uncontrolled human activities such as burning fuel energy in factories and in motor vehicles like cars and buses that release warm gases in the atmosphere. These gases, according to scientists, block heat in the atmosphere from escaping, leading to a warmer Earth. Today, although some parts of the Earth are warming faster than others, the average global air temperatures near the Earth's surface have risen by about 2 degrees centigrade. The past five years, according to weather experts, have been the warmest compared to any year in the past centuries. The warming of the Earth has disrupted the usual balance of nature, leading to heat waves, 
changes in rainfall which in many parts have become more severe with frequent storms and causing flooding and landslides and destroying homes and communities. Dry seasons have become longer and in the process leading to shortages of food and water. Dr. Nelly Matumara is a surgeon and a specialist in diseases of the ear, the nose and the throat. Her title is anti-surgeon. She explains why children are mainly vulnerable to healthy problems related to climate change. Children are some of our most vulnerable population. They have smaller body size. They are not able to dissipate heat as well as adults are. So they're just more susceptible to these heat extremes. With global warming, there will be more heat extremes. So a heat extreme event that previously may have happened once every 50 years under two degrees Celsius of warming is going to happen 14 times more often. So clearly, children are going to be more susceptible to these heat extremes. They don't dissipate heat as well. They have a higher surface area to body ratio. And a lot of times, children can't tell you if they're feeling overheated or hot, as so then they're higher risk of having stroke and heat symptoms. The health impacts of climate change increasingly pose additional challenges for health care systems, both in curative treatment and in preventive care. Dr. Nelima is also a researcher for the Climate Health Institute at George Washington University in the United States of America. She explains the common climate change-related ailments she sees in patients. As an ENT surgeon, a lot of what I'm seeing is the respiratory impacts of both heat and air pollution. And so we know that with higher levels of heat, there's increased ground-level ozone, which is also known as smog, which can really negatively impact respiratory symptoms in children, most specifically increasing their risk of asthma attacks. In addition, seasonal allergies are getting worse. Environmental allergies are such a huge issue, especially for children that increases their nasal congestion. They don't sleep as well. A lot of times they don't do as well in school. And studies have shown us that over the past 30 years, the environmental pollen allergy season is about three weeks longer than it used to be. And this is in part due to changes in temperature and precipitation patterns associated with global warming. Higher temperatures increase heat-related illnesses such as respiratory and cardiovascular diseases as well as liver and kidney damage, while floods increase waterborne diseases such as diarrhea, malaria, dengue, chikungunya, and others. When we think about what is it that global warming is doing, it's changing temperature and precipitation patterns, it's changing humidity, it's increasing both flooding and drought. So this impacts mosquitoes and so it therefore impacts the spread of a lot of different illnesses such as malaria and dengue. And so basically what we're thinking about here is that the climate sensitivity or the environmental suitability for a lot of these vector-borne diseases is changing and that's how Disease processes like malaria, dengue, West Nile virus, Lyme disease, all of these are being impacted, again, because the environmental suitability for these vectors is changing. Basing on her experience in the medical field, Dr. Nelima is calling upon governments to implement measures that will limit the impact of climate change on our health. She also appeals to the public at large to review our lifestyles.
The first thing, we need to take action. We really need to be thinking about frontline communities and communities that are most impacted by global warming and by air pollution. And so definitely would love to see more policy in place that really protects these frontline communities and those who are most impacted and protects our most vulnerable populations, which are children and the elderly. And then on an individual level, you know, we all have our own individual roles to play in terms of impacting climate policy and really changing the public narrative on climate change. And so the more that we can do and talk about climate change, we can really sort of set the stage for more aggressive action moving forward. Dr. Nelima Tumara, a researcher, surgeon, and specialist in diseases of the ear, the nose, and the throat. And lastly, the international community marked the International Childhood Cancer Day last Thursday, February 15th. The day is marked every year on that same date to raise awareness about childhood cancer and to express support for children and adolescents with cancer, the survivors, and their families. The day is also a call to each of us to play a part in the fight against childhood cancer. Cancer is one of the leading causes of death among children and adolescents worldwide today. According to the World Health Organization, every year more than 400,000 children and adolescents are diagnosed with cancer. Unlike cancer in adulthood, the underlying factors that contribute to childhood cancer are not yet clearly known and only a few of these childhood cancers can be prevented. This means that the recovery of the victims largely depends on the capacity of health systems to ensure timely diagnosis, early referral, and appropriate treatment. While this is possible in developed countries, it is still a privilege of the few in poor nations due to the expenses involved and due to lack of specialized medical doctors and specialized healthy facilities. The most common type of cancer in children include leukemia, brain tumors, cancer of the lymph glands, tumors of the central nervous system, intracranial tumors, and tumors of the eye. The World Health Organization is calling upon governments to strengthen health systems so that health care providers are able to spot the early signs of childhood cancer and refer the patient to specialized care. The World Health Organization also recommends that patients, general practitioners, and pediatricians play a vital role in detecting signs and symptoms of childhood cancer early on because it is easier to save lives when the detection is done early enough. And with that, we come to the end of this week's edition of Health and Healing. You have been listening to the English Africa service of Vatican Radio, and I am Johnny Baptist Tomosime. In your next program at the same time tomorrow, you can hear our feature, Culture and Society. Praise be Jesus Christ. Laudetur Jesus Christus.